Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his essay on fairy stories, and in particular in the section entitled Fantasy, J.R.R. Tolkien is going to say something very interesting, not just about fairy stories, but about literature itself and the other arts and their capacity for being a vehicle of what he is terming fantasy. And the thing that he's going to say is in human art, fantasy is a thing best left to words to true literature. That is to the arts that work primarily on us through the medium of language. And why is he going to say this? Well, we have to think about what he actually means by fantasy. And if we're coming to this with sort of preconceptions of fantasy as being a genre of literature that we can find in certain bookstores or categorized, and Tolkien fits into that, we need to throw that away. We need to attend to what Tolkien himself actually tells us he means by fantasy. So in that case, we have to distinguish it from what he calls imagination, right? Imagination is this power that we have. And he says that, you know, it can vary in different strengths and degrees. But what's really important here, he says, is another thing or aspect needing another name. And then he says, art, the operative link between imagination and the final result Subcreation. Subcreation is a major concept outlined here in the work. And he says, for my present purpose, I require a word which shall embrace. And then he's going to tell us about two important aspects. And he says that this is derived from the image, right? A quality essential to fairy story. I propose, therefore, to aggregate to myself the, the powers of Humpty Dumpty and to use fantasy for this purpose. Humpty Dumpty famously says, words mean what I say they mean. So Tolkien is telling us that fantasy is something intimately connected with fairy stories. And what are the aspects of fantasy? So here, the sentence that I skipped over momentarily, he says, I require a word which shall embrace both the subcreative art in itself, this ability to create a secondary world and secondary belief, as he calls it. So that's one aspect and a quality of strangeness and wonder in the expression derived from the image. This is also incredibly important. There are a couple other things that he's going to say about fantasy that I think could be helpful for understanding why he's going to say that literature is its primary home. So he tells us that uh, fantasy has an essential drawback. It is difficult to achieve. So this should tell us right off the bat that just writing a story, you know, some fan fiction where you've got like an ogre and the ogre's got some problems because he lives in a swamp, a stinky swamp, and there's a princess and stuff. That's not necessarily yielding fantasy yet. Fantasy is difficult to achieve. Now, if you know the story I was just referencing, I think that's a fairly successful secondary world, although Tolkien would be a little bit iffy about it, wouldn't he? So he says that fantasy may be, as I think, not less 
but more sub-creative. At any rate, it is found in practice that the inner consistency of reality is more difficult to produce, the more unlike are the images and the rearrangements of the primary material to the actual arrangements of the primary world. Uh, what is he saying there? Well, you know, it's easier to do realistic fiction than it is to do fantasy, isn't it? And he goes on and he says, fantasy thus too often remains underdeveloped and it's been used frivolously or only half seriously or merely for decoration. It remains merely fanciful, right? So it's difficult to do genuine fantasy. The other thing that is very important comes at the very end of this section. He tells us that fantasy is a natural human activity. It certainly does not destroy or even insult reason, and it does not either blunt the appetite for nor obscure the perception of scientific verity. On the contrary, the keener and the clearer is the reason, the better fantasy it will, will it make. And he goes on and he says, if people were ever in a state in which they did not want to know or could not perceive truth, facts, or evidence, then fantasy would languish until they were cured. If they ever get into that state, fantasy will perish and become morbid delusion. And he goes on and he says, creative fantasy is founded on the hard recognition that things are so in the world as it appears under the sun on a recognition of fact, not a slavery to it. Now, let me say that line one more time. Recognition of fact, not a slavery to it. Realism comes in different varieties and the realism of genuine fantasy is a genuine realism, so to speak. So fantasy is not going to be at odds with rationality and realism properly understood. So he goes on and he tells us that coming back to this point, fantasy is really going to be working well in the medium of language. And he's going to only talk about two different other arts, one in just a sentence and the other for several pages. So he talks about painting. And we could extend this perhaps to all the visual arts, the ones that don't involve movement, animation, character, that sort of thing being developed, but are static. So, you know, sculpture or murals or pick whatever else you want that is being depicted in what we could call the still image, even if it's in three dimensions. And he says that within painting, the visible presentation of the fantastic image is technically too easy the hand outruns the mind, even to overthrow it. And he says that silliness or morbidity are the frequent results. So that's an interesting way of writing off the static image as opposed to what we can develop in our minds through the language. And we'll come back to that in a moment. What about drama? So he tells us that drama is naturally hostile to fantasy. And he also tells us that it's a misfortune that drama and art fundamentally distinct from literature should so commonly be considered together with it or as a branch of it. Now, why? Well, think about the difference between a play, and we, we usually say a play and we mean the written account, right? The dialogue, the stage directions, all of that stuff. But the play, maybe capital P, is really what is performed, what is put before our eyes. 
I took a world literature class back when I was in college. And in it, we read, you know, some novels, for example. We read uh, Nabokov's Lolita, and we read short stories, including Jorge Luis Borges' The Garden of Forking Paths. And we read poetry, and we read some of the most ancient things provided. We read the Epic of Gilgamesh. But we also read Dante, portions of Dante's Inferno. We read also some drama, for example, Aeschylus's Agamemnon, which I thought was really great. And when we read a play, we're reading how the play should develop. And that's more akin to literature. What a real play is, though, what happens up on stage with the people who are depicting and presenting and embodying characters and the plot and all of that. Aristotle was smart enough back in ancient times to say, yeah, play isn't just the thought and the dialogue and the plot. It's also spectacle and music and these other aspects that are important as well. And drama is that. When we go to see, for example, we just saw Much Ado About Nothing. We didn't go there and sit our butts in the seat and have somebody hand us William Shakespeare's play and then say, well, let's all read through this. We watched the characters on the stage. So that's what a real drama is. That's what Tolkien has in mind. And Tolkien says that among these misfortunes, we may reckon the depreciation of fantasy. And this is, you know, kind of a problem here. And he tells us that fantasy, even of the simplest kind, hardly ever succeeds in drama when that is presented as it should be visibly and audibly acted. Fantastic forms are not to be counterfeited. Men dressed up as talking animals may achieve buffoonery or mimicry, but they do not achieve fantasy. And so he's going to talk here about what he calls a, a bastard form pantomime, the kind of things that are presented for children. And he says that uh, the nearer this is to dramatized fairy story, the worse it is. It's only tolerable when the plot and fantasy are reduced to a mere vestigiary framework for farce and no belief of any kind in any part of the performance is required or expected of anybody. And he talks about watching a children's pantomime, the straight story of Puss in Boots with even the metamorphosis of the ogre into a mouse. And he says, though it was done with some ingenuity of lighting, disbelief had not so much to be suspended and it is hung, drawn, and quartered. So he's dismissing this sort of, you know, aimed at children, pantomime, uh, debased sort of drama. Even if it's working off of a fairy story, it's, it's not really effectively doing that. We might ask, ask ourselves, actually, do Disney adaptations of fairy tales actually fall into this? They're generally not very good from a plot perspective. Now, what about drama proper? Get away from the kid stuff. What about Macbeth? He says, in Macbeth, when it's read, I find the witches tolerable. They have a narrative function and some hint of dark significance. Though they're vulgarized, poor things of their kind, they're almost intolerable in the play. They would be quite intolerable if I were not fortified by some memory of them as they are in the story as read. And he goes on and he says, a reason more important than the inadequacy of stage effects is this. Drama has, of its very nature, already attempted a kind of bogus, or shall I say, at least substitute magic. The visible and audible presentation of imaginary men in a story. That is itself an attempt to counterfeit the magician's wand. So drama is already engaging in a kind of magic. It's not the kind that's really congenial to what Tolkien is calling 
fantasy. He says, to introduce even with mechanical success into this quasi-magical secondary world, a further fantasy or magic is to demand, as it were, an inner or tertiary world. It is a world too much. To make such a thing may not be impossible. I have never seen it done with success. So he's not saying it's totally out of bounds. It could never happen. He's not making a statement about the nature of things as such. He's just saying, I've never seen it actually pulled off. So he goes on and he says, this is the the reason the characters and even the scenes are in drama not imagined, but actually beheld. Drama is, even though it uses a similar material, words versus plot, an art fundamentally different from narrative art. Thus, if you prefer drama to literature or form your critical theories primarily from dramatic critics or even from, even from drama, you are apt to misunderstand pure story making and to constrain it to the limitations of stage plays. You are, for instance, he's just giving one example, likely to prefer characters, even the basest and dullest to things. Very little about trees as trees can be got into a play. Now we should pause here for a moment and think about what might be said about film and TV shows and all these other interesting adaptations that take place in our vast streaming media scape that we now inhabit, where sometimes shows may have hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions of dollars spent upon them to try to put them in front of us viewers and give us a fantasy that we can indulge in. You might think about the lack of success of some of these. For example, the poor adaptation of A Song of Ice and Fire to the show Game of Thrones. Or we might multiply instances as well. It's being put before our eyes. We're not being asked to imagine except perhaps at very occasional places within the story where someone says, oh, you can't see this, this is happening off scene. As a matter of fact, you could say that TV and film are even more than drama, putting things right in front of our faces, right? Things that would ordinarily be happening off stage can be brought directly on stage. So this is why Tolkien thinks that's naturally hostile to fantasy. But what about, he says, theory and drama. Those plays which, according to abundant records, the elves have often presented to men, these can produce fantasy with a realism and immediacy beyond the compass of any human mechanism. Oh, okay, so fantasy might be possible there. But he says, as a result, their usual effect upon a person is to go beyond secondary belief. If you are present at a fairy and drama, you yourself are, or think that you are, bodily within its secondary world. You've entered now into the drama itself. You are perhaps a minor character, but you are a character. And he says, the experience may be very similar to dreaming and has, it would seem sometimes by men, been confounded with it. But in fairy and drama, you are in a dream that some other mind is weaving and the knowledge of that alarming fact may slip from your grasp. To experience directly a secondary world, the potion is too strong and you give it primary belief. However marvelous the events, you are deluded. Whether that is the intention of the elves is another question. They at any rate are not themselves deluded. This for them is a form of art and distinct from wizardry or magic, properly so-called. They do not live in it though they can perhaps afford to spend more time in it than human artists can. And so, well, what is fairy and drama in this respect? He doesn't give any examples of it. And we might think less of drama per se, and more of other immersive experiences like that of playing 
video games that suck us in, right? And where we take for a little while the secondary world that is created as a primary world. And it can have fantasy characters, you know, you can play a Lord of the Rings video game or something like that or any other fantasy games, but it's not fantasy in Tolkien's sense. You are perhaps using your imagination to some degree, but it's more having imagination poured upon and imposed upon you and you're invited just to participate in it. So very interesting discussion here about what the proper vehicle of fantasy could be. Tolkien is very clear that he thinks that it's going to be in the medium of language and particularly in what he's calling true literature. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.